it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Thanks so much for Kilmeade. being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Dan Rooney's going to be joining us in General Ed Thomas. Why would they be coming on with us? Because like every branch of the military, they're having trouble recruiting for the Air Force. Uh, they used, they used to be the, the place to go. Now they're having trouble getting people. They're going to be pleading their case. As you know, Dan Rooney, not only a world-class golfer, philanthropist, uh, he's a professional golfer. He's also a fighter pilot and General Ed Thomas with Space Force. So we'll talk about that. And one of the most respected governors in the country, Governor Chris Sununu, the 82nd governor of New Hampshire. Of course, you know the family. His dad was the former chief of staff uh, for President George H.W. Bush, the 41st president of the United States. He's going to be with us shortly. He's not ruling out a presidential run, but I want him to weigh in on what's happening with this new trend towards Democrats in this midterm election. Big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I didn't shut down anything. We didn't recommend shutting everything down. We wanted to cause a pause to remember the terminology to flatten the curve. Is he out of his mind? The answer is yes. Fauci fallout. The disgraced doctor now says he didn't lock down or mandate anyone or anything. What kind of exit strategy is this? Lying out the door, denying that we all what we all saw and lived. Why is he leaving, by the way? We'll discuss it. Number two. The loan forgiveness suggestion is really, in my mind, would create so many perverse incentives, starting with, to, to Larry Summers' point, the increasing of, tu- of tuition costs. Unforgivable student loan forgiveness expected to be announced today by President Biden. It's a plea and play for your votes, and even some on his side say it's a bad move. We'll look at the fallout. Number one. The National Archives thought they had it all. Turns out they didn't. For reasons that are probably pretty compelling, the Department of Justice felt it had no choice but to go in and seek a a search warrant. Really? Jay Johnson, getting complicated. Raid fallout accelerates on all sides as Trump and the DOJ try to bracket out their cases. The difference, Trump's front and center and the DOJ, uh, FBI, is we're getting those facts through leaks to the New York Times and Washington Post. Does that sound like the whole Russia hoax? The answer is, of course, yes. And let's get started. So let me just give you uh, some of the latest. First off, on May 10th, a letter to President Trump's attorney, Evan Corcoran, that was released yesterday uh, that, listen to this, Acting archivist Deborah Seidel-Wall outlined weeks of resistance, okay, by the Trump team. That's what they claim, even though they got 15 boxes in January. Uh, following an April 20th email, Trump tried to delay and thwart the FBI's review of the records he turned over, according to them. Seidel also wrote that despite pages of material, some of its extraordinary sensitive material related to the secret operations and programs with very limited access on a need-to-know basis. So she says this stuff is important. But I also think it's important is that she seems to be indicating that President Biden is the one who told her it's okay for the archives to go forward how they saw fit. Wait a second. Hold the phones. So I thought the Biden administration and President Biden in particular knew nothing about any of this. 
As President Trump said at the time, there's no way he couldn't know. And now we find out for sure he didn't know. Now, was it did Donald Trump complicate his life by taking documents out? Yes. Or the people that took it out? Yes. You know, something else is indicative here, as was reported and leaked to the New York Times and Washington Post, that they said when they opened up these boxes, they weren't, they weren't, there's no table of contents. They weren't in any type of order. They weren't labeled. Doesn't that sound like an administration that was putting it all together at the end after the January 6th debacle when people were talking about using the 25th Amendment to throw them out of office? So they probably just took the papers, put them into a box, walked out in full view in daylight, and now they say, well, you took too much. How this ended up in a raid, I still can't get my head around. Here is Jay Johnson. He can cut four, the former HHS secretary uh, for President Obama. It seems as though there was a dialogue uh, going on between the government and former President Trump's lawyers, where each time the National Archives thought they had it all, turns out they didn't. And for reasons that are probably pretty compelling, the Department of Justice felt it had no choice but to go in and seek a, a search warrant uh, to obtain all the rest of what's still at Mar-a-Lago. Probably pretty compelling. If they are, let us see it. A judge who obviously people have reason to believe leans left says, donated President Obama, says, you should be able to show us this, this affidavit. Okay. Well, by tomorrow, that's Thursday at noon, we're going to get the affidavit. What is not redacted, we'll get to read. I hope. At least the judge will. My sense is, since they don't want to delay it, they're so confident in their case, they're not going to over-redact. If they do, the judge sends it right back, and this whole thing gets delayed even further. Here's the president's attorney cut one. As far as Ms. Wall's letter, it states very clearly that she was told by counsel to President Biden, again, like you said, misinformation. They said they didn't know. But counsel to the president said that he deferred to Ms. Wall and that she could then decide to just remove the privilege that every president prior has had. Right. So President Biden decides he wants to do that in a case he knew nothing about. Oops. Did I say that? Cut to. As to what happened in between June and August, well, we know what happened. This was an event that was prime right before election. It is prime because he's way ahead in the polls. And the Wall Street Journal's headline today stated it perfectly clearly. This was an improper search. It was not done correctly. There was no need for it. And he was cooperating. There is absolutely no reason, no reason. And now we have evidence of that, that they were cooperating. In the New York Post editorial today, the official line spun by the White House and the Biden Biden administration and his staff that they had no clue about the AG Merrick Garland had authorized the armed FBI raid on President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home until it finally happened. But it turns out they at least enabled and knew about the ongoing investigation. Why did you not say that, press secretary? Why did you not say that in your myriad of interviews? I know the president doesn't like to talk on vacation when he does talk and not on vacation. It doesn't usually go well. But if you want to get the facts out and you feel like the facts are your side, you might as well use the facts and say them because eventually they will come out, as we've learned. Uh, We already had proof of one or more, the editorial says, White House involvement that was advertised. Zero concrete proof that the raid was actually justified. We warned that the raid was a huge gamble by Garland until the officials involved give a full public explanation. They keep looking worse to everyone except extremists on the left who want Trump in jail and don't care why. 
Now, Trump has got new life. Trump is getting a lot of money off this. I want to see the president of the United States give money to these Senate candidates, these House candidates, many of which you endorsed, many of which are struggling right now to earn that money. Here's Larry Kudlow, cut six. I continue to believe that this is not about presidential documents, but it is about desperate attempts by the Biden administration to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in 2024. Now, a bunch of smart folks I know think this outrageous invasion virtually guarantees that the former president now will run for president in 2024. So the other thing I want to go over, because I don't want to take too much time away from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rooney as well as General Thomas, is this. Yesterday, uh, today is going to be official. Yesterday was announced that President Biden expected to eliminate $10,000 worth of student loan debt forgiveness. I ask you. You cannot be, uh, that is the other definition of short-term thinking. Number one, the benefit's going to be from those 18 to 25-year-olds, many of which don't vote. For those 32-year-olds that paid off their loans, those 38-year-olds that just finished it off, those 42-year-olds that went to medical school, say, well, excuse me, what did I do? I was never rich. I paid it off. I budgeted it out. I went to a cheaper school. I went to a technical school. I never went to college. Why am I having all this money paid back or forgiven. The money's not forgiven. It doesn't evaporate. What it does goes into a big pot and goes into our debt because we're not on a surplus. Well, the president feels as though it's the right thing to do because Senator Schumer said so, that AOC pushed for it. And guess what? People will never be happy. The NAACP says uh, 10000 is not enough for African-Americans who had tend to borrow more. All right, guess what? Bernie Sanders says, why are we not forgiving all of it? Really? Okay. Penn Wharton estimated that uh, the Wharton School of Business that a one-time forgiveness of $10,000 per borrower could cost $300 billion. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Dana Perino, not okay like I'm not. Cut nine. We knew that this was coming because the, the president kept kicking the can down the road. Even he has said this is just for politics. He said last January. Everybody is saying this is a bad idea except for the people who are saying, no, really, Come with us. Come over to the farther left side, and that will make a big deal. We'll make a big deal out of it. They're basically writing off the middle class and the blue collar workers. This is an illegal move. It is unethical. It is immoral, and they're not going to get the political payoff that they're looking for. They're not going to get the PR spin. They're just going to go through all the policy pain, and they're not going to satisfy the left, and they're not going to satisfy anybody on the right. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. A lot of people on the left aren't happy, and some don't think he should be doing it at all, like Larry Summers, who's firmly on the left. Uh, Chris Sununu at the bottom of the hour. We have uh, two people who are going to come with you and tell you why you should join the Air Force, who are great Americans, Dan Rooney and Ed Thomas. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news, twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Everyone wants to make their mark on the world. But why make just one? Make many. All the products of your imagination. All the lives impacted by your courage. These are the marks that make a difference. 
that changed the world. You may ask, what difference can I make in the Air Force? I say, all the difference. I'm General C.Q. Brown, Jr. Come join us and make a difference. Wow, and that is just a little of the recruiting that's been done now by all branches of government. That, of course, uh, the Air Force. Major General Ed Thomas joins us and Lieutenant Colonel Dan Rooney, Air Force Recruiting Command, Air Force fighter pilot, outstanding golfer, Folds of Honor founder, uh, one of the great people you'll ever meet. Uh, General, I'm sure you agree with that. Thanks for joining us, both of you. Hey, thanks, Brian. Great to be here and love having Dan uh, Dan Rooney and our team here at Recruiting Service. Yeah, I just wish you'd be in a good mood once in a while. I just need a little bit more upbeat, <laughs> yeah. right, General? Uh, first off, General, to you, I did not know the Air Force. I, usually that's the branch that people prefer to get into, but you've only reached, is it 85% of your recruiting goal? Yeah, Brian. Hey, we're at about 85% right now of our enlisted recruiting goal. The good news, though, is while we've had we've had a tough year, I'll be honest, it's been the toughest recruiting year since at least 1999. In the active duty Air Force, we're going to meet our recruiting goal, but it's going to be by narrow margin this year. Uh, the, the, the battle for talent out there in America with the labor market is tough right now. Uh, why is that, Dan? Yeah, now I think, Brian, um, obviously you got low unemployment, right? And uh, you've got a cultural shift that's among us, right? And we're going to make our recruiting goal this year. But I think reimagining how we inspire the next generation is, is critical. And I always say you can tell anybody all the facts you want, but when you tell somebody a story, that's what lives in people's hearts and minds. And so to come alongside as, as a wingman for Major General Thomas to to tell the impact of the story the Air Force has had on me is just a an awesome opportunity to, to pay it forward because literally with, without the United States Air Force in my life, nothing um, as I know it today, and I've got the dream job description, uh, exists. And just to share with these young people um, that and reach out and connect, and that's another big issue when we look at the the connectivity of the military toward the general public and reaching this this next generation, I think, is an, is an all-time low. And we look for creative ways to tell that story and inspire this uh, this next group. And I talked about it this morning with you guys on Fox and Friends. What I love about the Air Force, it's the difference between success and significance. And you are significant the day you raise your right hand, you join the Air Force or the Space Force, and you say, hey, guess what? I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I'm going to put on a uniform and represent a half a percent of this country that defends our liberties. And it's the greatest team on earth. And I'm incredibly passionate. I hope you can hear it in my voice yep. to uh, to share that story and the life-changing opportunities um, that it offers. If it was up to me. I wish everybody had to serve two years. It, it changed you forever. We're not at that point. Uh, but I want to uh, share the story in a, you know, hopefully a very encouraging right. and uplifting way so people understand what the Air Force is all about. So, uh, uh, General uh, Thomas, you're a commander of the Air Force Recruiting Service. Uh, what numbers do you, are you at now and what do you need? So every year, uh, Brian, we recruit about 45,000 airmen across our total force. That's serving uh, full-time uh, or part-time in the Guard or the Reserve, uh, full-time in the active duty. Um, and on our enlisted side, that's where recruiting has been the toughest. You know, that's our airmen, our sergeants, our chief master sergeants. And uh, recruiting for our enlisted force, we're looking at about uh, 26,000 folks we need to recruit uh, this fiscal year. And we're at about 23,000 right now. So our recruiters are out there hustling hard 
kind of making up for two right. years of lost time with COVID, a couple years of not being in schools, and just kind of working hard to get our numbers back up and getting the, the quality and uniform that we need for America. So, Dan, you're a, an elite golfer. You're a pro golfer. You're in, you have like 0% body fat. So for people who aren't as athletic as you, right, and don't have that, that athletic background, a lot of them say, no, I'll get you on, but I'm never going to pass the physical. What is the physical requirement? Yeah, and I, it, never limit yourself and the opportunities in, in, in your life. And I think that's a lesson I've learned in the Air Force. Um, go see a recruiter. There are programs that they will tell you exactly where you need to be. So do not self-eliminate by saying, well, I can, I can never do it. You'd be amazed at how accommodating and how passionate we are about getting people in the door and helping them achieve that, whether that is a um, scholastic or a physical goal to qualify for the Air Force. And it's a, we're, you know, not going to sugarcoat it, right? It's a problem. Almost 75% of the country doesn't qualify, uh, but we have got programs to help people get right. to that place. Uh, so, hey, Dan, I was, uh, I was uh, looking at LinkedIn not too long ago and saw this great story of one of our recruits, so proud, standing there with his parents after he graduated from basic military training at Lackland, standing there in his, his blue uniform, and he had lost 100 pounds to be able to come in and serve in our Air Force. So I would just add that our physical standards, while we want physically fit people, not everybody's going to be a special operator, um, you know, or not everybody is going to do some of the physically demanding jobs. We've got cyber operators and we've got engineers. We've got all kinds of professions within the Air Force. And is that the Space Force, Not everybody force has too? to be a pro athlete. Who, how do we get find out about Space Force? Yeah, so we recruit at Air Force Recruiting Service. We recruit for both Space Force and Air Force. We recruit about 500 enlisted guardians a year, and we bring in several hundred um, Space Force officers every year. So you go to spaceforce.com, and it's got all the details of how to come in and join the Space Force. Gotcha. Great opportunity to be on the cutting edge of a new service. www.airforce.com, and just specify what you're looking for, and great people like Major General Ed Thomas and Lieutenant Colonel Dan Rooney, who had to put the uniform back on because there was such a need for fighter pilots, and he's still uh, in uniform today. And by the way, support Folds of Honor. General, I'm sure you agree. If you want to support the families that sacrifice everybody and make sure those kids go to college. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks hey, so thanks, much, Brian. Brian. Aim high. You got it. When we come back, Governor Chris Sununu joins us. We move forward with the latest on politics, the last prime, big primary day as we have a sprint to November. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. talk show that's getting you talking you're with brian kilmeade so uh this wasn't a way to avoid uh republican investigations if they take over the house and or the senate oh neil not at all not even a little bit i mean i have nothing to hide and i can defend everything i've done and every decision i've made so i'm not afraid of that at all that didn't even come in as a minor consideration i believe that oversight is an important part of the government process. But some of the things that have gone on have been out, outright character assassination. That's not oversight. So if they want to get into legitimate 
dignified oversight, I'd be more than happy to do that. So, Wood, uh, is that why he's leaving? Uh, Anthony Fauci is because he doesn't want to deal with the Republican House. Uh, let's deal with uh, a little a little bit of what he said with Governor Chris Sununu, because he was forced, as we all were, to deal with a lot of the government's actions on this once in a lifetime, we hope, pandemic. Governor, welcome back. Uh, thank you so much. And my uh, my farewell to Anthony Fauci is bye. I mean, I mean, how does, what else can you say? Have you seen anything like this where people think he walked out water and would just not acknowledge when he made a huge mistake? Like, don't wear a mask, wear a mask, a vac. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Go get three and four or five boosters, not acknowledging that people get a myocarditis, not saying the long term effects of putting kids in school don't outweigh the risk of leaving them at home. He just doesn't acknowledge any of it. None of it. And look, this is an individual who I think a lot of folks, you know, were hoping would be able to put some trust and faith in very early on in the process. And he obviously got a little too carried away with his own stardom. And uh, how, you know, I got to be honest, who kept giving that guy the microphone after, you know, mistake after mistake after mistake? I don't know whose decision that was out of the White House early on. But either way, he he really kind of, you know, had a a bit of a flair for himself uh, as and, uh, you know, as the high, by the way, the highest paid employee uh, in the federal government. Um, You know, it'd be nice to see some of that money come back to us. But uh, apparently Biden has just blown it on three hundred billion dollars in student loan forgiveness. So that ain't going to happen. But look, we just need we need confidence in the system. Pandemic is about science, about data, it's about trends, transparency, all those really important things that I think governors, especially Republican governors, did a very good job with. And um, if anything, we had to constantly kind of not correct for him, but explain for a CDC and an Anthony Fauci and other folks that just were never consistent on the message. And that's where he lost a lot of folks across. The and Governor Cuomo used to back channel him and go around what he said was going around uh, President Trump at the time. Here is more from Fauci. And I'm not going to waste our segment on, on this, but it just matters so much. Cut 18. Do you regret the shutdown, the sweeping shutdown that some yeah. said made things worse? No, I, I, I don't, uh, Neil. And in fact, I think we need to make sure that your listeners understand I didn't shut down anything. There was a lot of consideration among the White House task force that we were reaching a point where the hospitals, such as in New York City and other places, were being strained to the point of practically being overwhelmed. Really? So the New York hospitals, he thought, were overwhelmed, and they were getting a hit early. So he shut down the country two weeks or 10 days to shut down the spread, and we could not get people to reopen up, and he was not urging them to do it. And then we find out later he had no problem with Black Lives Matter protests in the streets in the middle of a pandemic. He had no problem. Uh, he had no problem with the teachers' unions deciding six feet apart was necessary. Governor, how damaging was six feet apart? It was impossible to have a classroom at six feet apart, right? It was really challenging. It was. And, and again, I'm a governor. I'm not going to tell you whether it's two feet or three feet or whatever, you know, whatever it is. But the whole point is that you know they came up with all these rules and all these conditions. And to, I think to the credit of a lot of folks, and not just patting myself, but other Republican governors on the back, we said, okay, we're going to take those and we're going to uh, allow local control. We're going to you know, pre- present some guidance, but we're not going to pre- present laws and absolute rules and, and, and all of that sort of thing. So we gave a lot of flexibility and a lot of guidance. And at the end of the day, I'm a big believer in local control. And, and that prevailed, and especially in New Hampshire, where we were blessed. We, we got through it very, very well. But you remember, this was the same White House that was telling uh, governors 
governors like Brian Kemp, you're opening too fast, you're opening too quickly, and all of that sort of thing. Um, when, again, governors were on the ground talking to folks and making the right decisions, far, you know, by and large. So, uh, again, you know, I, you can't, you can, we could talk all day about it, but I think the best, the best thing to do is just to say goodbye and we're moving on. I hope so, too. And a lot of people are reluctant to go back in school. They're, they're so, uh, I, I guess, they're a little overwhelmed by what they've been through over the last two years, afraid to walk around without a mask. You can't say there's not irreparable damage. They say, on average, kids have been hurt and set back about six months of schooling. What's happening in New Hampshire? It's not just the schooling, Brian. It's the mental health aspects. It's the separation and, you know, the, the lack of socialization, the lack of team sports, the lack of extracurricular activities, the lack of getting out there with your peers. And then you combine that with what we already have, this new digital age and devices and social media and all the things. So the, the academics um, are, are, are tough enough, but, you know, that could be corrected. We didn't, we kept our, I think, kids are out of school, you know, six weeks or something like that here in New Hampshire. We got them right back in, which was terrific. But the, the lack of that, that mental health aspect, that is really, the I think, the unspoken crisis in this country, not just today, but really for the next five and ten years, especially around kids and behavioral health and all those things. So for us, I think that's where the pandemic really hit the hardest um, and where we need to kind of double and triple down our efforts. There's going to be a press conference at the White House, at which time the president's going to say unilaterally, I didn't know he was capable of doing this, I'm going to forgive $10,000 worth of student debt. How do the people of New Hampshire respond to that? It's, uh, it's insulting. It's absolutely insulting. First off, I'm with you. How does he have the power to do this? Who, what, what, you know, what single individual has the power to change their balance sheet unilaterally? Um, that in itself without congressional approval when you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. But let's just focus on the obvious. You have the farmers, the construction workers, those that maybe went into trades right, and didn't go to college. They have to pay off the student loans of a New York PhD or a New York lawyer. Uh, it, it's insulting. I don't care what party you're from. This is unfair, and we can debate policy. We can be left-wingers and right-wingers and conservatives and liberals, but at the end of the day, what every American wants is to know that the system is, above all else, fair. And this is just arbitrary. It's unfair. Um, we're going to start quantitatively easing, which I think is uh, – I'm sorry, quantitatively tightening in September, which is the right thing to do to get inflation under control, You know, pulling about $80 billion out of the economy a month and as we go forward. But this just completely undoes that. Right. So it's bad economically. It's bad for inflation. It's unfair. It's just completely arbitrary. And it's not going to have the political win they're thinking, because all they're doing is catering to those who are already voting for the extreme liberals and that socialistic type agenda. Um, and it doesn't really and it, it exacerbates the biggest problem that America has right now. 20 years. You want to talk inflation? For 20 years, this country has had huge escalating prices in college. Why? Because the federal government assumed all the loans, gave them to anyone who wanted them. And so there was no checks and balance or free market uh, kind of competition controlling the price of college. So that escalated huge. Debt got way out of control. And now they're rewarding folks effectively for, um, you know, I'm not saying be, being irresponsible, but they're rewarding the system that they have they fundamentally broke in the first place by just throwing $300 billion of taxpayer money uh, out there with, with no constraints. So it's it's um, I, it's not going to go well, not just in New Hampshire, but I think across this country, people are going to be pretty frustrated with what happened. So you have a first term president, a one term president in President Trump. Your dad was chief of staff for President Bush 41. Was there ever talk of him running again after Clinton beat him the first time? Like there's talk of Trump running again? No, not that I know of. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure that 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 no. 
How, how does that? Because otherwise, you would if you would have run. You would have heard it in '96, right? So, right. Instead of Joel. you move on, right? You move. You move on. You have a bench. You you move on. And uh, again, we we've had great leadership over the over the years. We've got a great bench. There's lots of different candidates. And former President Trump might run again, and that's fine. And we'll have a good competitive race on both sides. I think it is going to be an open seat on the Democrat side. I think uh, both parties are going to have uh, other candidates potentially step up and jump in the race that even haven't even been talked about. And that makes it exciting. And, it, and, it, and I think it gives confidence to America that we are always willing to hit the reset button when we need to. And, and they are going to hit the reset button on this Democrat agenda coming out of D.C. Since Roe v. Wade got overturned, it seems Democrats have momentum now as uh, states have the control uh, Governor, where do you stand with uh, with the control and the uh, power you now have when it comes to uh, being pro life, pro choice? Where does yeah. New Hampshire stand, knowing that well, you're not a you're not a king or queen to do exactly what you want? You're supposed to reflect your people. Yeah. So in New Hampshire, in particular, nothing changes. I mean, really, no, nothing changes. So uh, you know, we uh, like most states have a, a late term abortion in month seventy nine, late term restrictions in month seventy nine. We have that here. Um, and I think what you're going to see is governors and states are going to have to decide, look, if you're fully pro-life, you're going to be fully pro-life and they're going to go for the full ban. And some states will choose to do that. And if you're not, if you like the Californians that are pro-abortion up until the, the, the very end, which is just, uh, you know, nobody, uh, you know, I don't want to say nobody, obviously, but some folks are going to go for that. Uh, they're going to go that way. And then everyone else is going to kind of be in this middle ground. And is it at 20 weeks or 24 weeks or 16 weeks? So every state, it's a state's rights issue now. Every state has to find their own path. So, uh, Governor, I was surprised, even though we had a chance, I had a chance to stay with, uh, to spend a day with you and saw how busy you are and how well-liked you are in New Hampshire the day of the primary, right before the pandemic oh, you, hit. You're making me blush, Brian. Well, it's true. Uh, <laughs> you're really well-liked. You're very comfortable. We, we hit a bunch of stops, and you did not know who we were walking into from the diners to the voting booths. You could. There's plenty of hostility out there. I live it on a daily basis as well as supporters. And and I thought you were going to run for Senate. I thought that made sense. Ultimately, you said, I don't want any part of Washington. Does that mean you ruled out the White House, too? Well, look, no, I mean, I'm, two things. I have my own race. I have to win my reelection in, in November. I have to get elected every two years here. We have we're one of the only states that does that, a lot of accountability. That, yeah. So i got to earn the votes here in, in this November, and then we'll, we'll see what follows after that. The Senate run was two things. Number one, I'm not term limited, right? So folks were asking me to quit what I love and, and really think I can do in terms of protecting New Hampshire's interests the best. And you can do that as a governor way more, way more easily and, and way more effectively than you can as being one of 100 U.S. senators that frankly don't really get a whole lot done. And, and I've been critical on, 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 on in the Senate and Congress on both sides. I, I, this isn't the first time I've said it, but I'll say it again. If you took all 100 senators and replaced them tomorrow with 100 random adults out of America, you can't tell me would get less done. You can't tell me would necessarily get a worse result. So they have the opportunity. They haven't really capitalized on it. I just didn't want to be part of that. I love New Hampshire, and uh, and that's really where my focus is now. General Bolduc, uh it looks like he is looks like he's uh, the nominee on the right for Republicans. Are you convinced that he is going to beat uh, Maggie Hassan? Well, a couple things. He's not the nominee. Uh, we have a primary in a month. And there's still 40 percent undecided. So whoever the nominee is, but he is leading, right? He is leading. But, you know, we're a very late race here. We don't have a primary till middle of September. And when you have still 45, 40, 45 percent undecided uh, in a primary election, everything's up for grabs. And so uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. But either way, um, uh, Senator Hassan has done such a, a terrible job. 
Let me give you an example. A year ago, her approval rating was about 42%. Since then, she spent $25 million. And today, her approval rating is 42%. So I don't care if they spend $100 million on the Democrat side in New Hampshire. They're not going anywhere. They are defined. Folks know what she's about. She just hasn't been here. She's just carrying a, a very liberal agenda out of D.C., I can't wait to see her try to explain her way out of giving three, another $300 billion, uh, in student loan forgiveness arbitrarily. Folks in New Hampshire ain't going to like that one bit. Um, so she's going to have a lot of trouble no matter who she comes up against. Would you say that if you decide to run, it wouldn't matter to you uh, whether President Trump runs or not? Would, would that be a statement that you would, would affirm? I think, that's a, I think that's a fair statement for almost anybody that would even consider running for president. I, I think, look, if you're going to do something like that, you have to be doing it for the right reason, um, not just to get into the race, not just to make a point. Um, but you have to really believe you're bringing leadership to the table. So, um, I mean, I can't speak for everyone else, but I've, I've talked to a lot of candidates that are thinking of running. They all come up here, and I'm happy to sit with all of them on the Republican, uh, on the Republican side. And we've had great conversations, and my sense is, these folks are running because they just want to see a better America and a better tomorrow. And I, I think that would go for anybody. Well, I could tell you right now, uh, Nikki Haley said she would not run. I can't see Mike Pompeo running. It looks like Mike Pence will. Uh, it's going to be hard for Ron DeSantis to run because if it wasn't for President Trump. He probably doesn't win the governorship and his backing. So with you, there's really just like you, Youngkin. Here's a secret, Brian. I don't mean to interrupt, but here's a secret. They're all going to run no matter what happens. You They're think so? Run. Yeah. Yeah, I really believe that. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm just telling you, my guess is at the end of the day, they may say what they want to say to not irk the former president, and, and everyone can appreciate that today. But when push comes to shove a year from now, the political landscape is going to be very different. I think all these folks that have expressed interest, uh, that are raising money like crazy and spending all right. their time on the national scene, they're not going to do that for two years and then say, um, I guess I'll just go home. I just I, I don't see that happening. And that'll, that'll allow for a good discussion. Now, as candidates filter out, we can't do what happened in, in previous years where you just have 20 people running. It becomes a mess. You end up with, with you know, folks getting nominations with 20 or 30 percent of the vote. So they have to have the discipline to kind of weed, weed themselves out. But I think at the end of the day, most all of them get in. I, really, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think that's the case. Hey, Governor, love your expertise. We've we got to make this a regular thing. Governor Chris Sununu, thanks so much. Thank you, brother. Be good. All right. Go get him. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. I see you up there from Michigan to Jacksonville. I'll get to your calls when we return. Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, Ben, you're in Michigan. Hey, Ben, what's on your mind? Hey, Brian. Good to talk to you again. Uh, as I told you earlier before when I called, I'm retired military, so is my wife. And uh, I can tell you one reason why the military is having a hard time. And they're all having a hard time recruiting, not just the Air Force. It's one of the, it's the woke culture that's been introduced into the military. To give you a perfect example... When it was introduced into the Naval Academy and in the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the video about the proper use of pronouns, when I saw that video, I thought I was going to croak. 
I, I mean, it, it's just absolutely horrendous that they're not teaching our sailors and soldiers and airmen how to fight. They're teaching them how the proper use of the pro, proper use of pronouns and other more cultural attributes like that. Number two, just saw on Fox News today about how 35 Navy SEALs are being put in horrendous living conditions while they await their religious exemptions for not wanting to take the vaccine. And people, our young people, they're seeing that. Majority of the young people that want to go in, have, go in because they have a military mindset. They see stuff like this. This is one reason why they're saying, no, not me. I'm not even trying to recruit people anymore to go in the military. It's just horrendous what's, what's going on in there. Well, is it going on under President Trump or is this just this new administration? It's, it's, it's very much more now in this new administration. I, I see it much more now than during Trump. In fact, Trump, it was probably just the opposite. Uh, he was actually uh, bringing – he was probably one of the biggest recruiters as far as getting the military. I mean the, the military actually went up in in uh, recruiting during his presidency. Uh, they saw he was trying to actually build up the military. This new president, this administration is just horrendous and is causing such a an outcry among people. They, they don't want to go in. They just do not. Thanks so much, Deborah WOKV. Real quick, Deborah, Jacksonville. Hi, good morning. Um, I was watching Fox and Friends this morning when you all were talking about the student loan forgiveness. So uh, the monies that's forgiven, will there will the people be taxed on that? If they're getting money. Basically, it's a payout. Yeah, good point. Uh, you know, they're getting less debt. That's pretty clear. But you know, I don't know if you can write off debt anymore, especially on student loan debt. The one thing they should tackle, the interest rates are too high. If you want to help people out, knock off the interest rates. Uh, we'll do that. But don't just give people $10,000 from my pocket and give it to other people because they chose to go to a college that they couldn't afford. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone, from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, heard around the world. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show, especially in the Ukraine. We're keeping an eye on what's happening over there. Rich Lowry at the bottom of the hour, Jared Kushner in studio. If you're smart enough to watch Fox Nation, his book is already a bestseller on Amazon. We'll find out where it lands on the New York Times list. It's called Breaking History, a White House memoir. Jared, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Brian. I mean, uh, a guy that's always at the nexus of power. You were very hard to interview, impossible to interview for the last four years. That was intentional, right? It wasn't intentional. I, I just felt like there were people who were better at communicating than me. My job was to help the president execute the different uh, priorities he gave me. And so I just, again, it takes a lot of work to come on and, and to make sure you're always doing this the right way. I have a lot of respect for the people who were communicators, but my job was to be an executor. Right. Absolutely. So in the beginning, you write that you didn't intend to really join the president uh, when he was a candidate. But then you started seeing what was going on and you saw some places where you could help. And gradually, it seemed like you got more and more involved. It didn't seem like there was one day where you said, I want to do it. Can you describe that process? Sure. Uh, so I, I write about this in the book, but uh, I was seeing what was happening with, with Donald when he announced. And obviously, it became a very hot topic. I, I saw somebody say recently, the last slow news day we've had in this country was June fifteenth, two 2015. <laughs> and uh, he announced, and it became a whole thing. And obviously, the first month was really helping my wife deal with all the fallout that happened to the business. 
uh, because of his announcement. Ivanka. And Ivanka and Don Jr. and Eric, and they were dealing with incoming everywhere. They had you know, restaurants canceling leases. Uh, they had uh, you know, a, a, a corporation severing ties because Trump was saying things about illegal immigration that were, that were becoming controversial. And so uh, I think he lost about $30 million of income in, in the first week or two. And he basically said, I don't care. I'm doing this for the country. This isn't about me. I have enough money and uh, I'm going to do what it takes. And so I, I kind of watched him do that. And then all of my friends in the Upper East Side in Manhattan were saying this is a disaster. This is going to end. I think the New York Post ran Don Voyage. He's out. And every time they predicted he was going to fall, he kept rising. And I was saying, well, this is just counterintuitive. And so after a couple of months, uh, Donald said to me, he said, Jared, why don't you come join me for a rally? And I said, you know, what? It, it'd be interesting to do. And, and we didn't know how much longer it would last at that point. So I went with him. Uh, we flew to Springfield, Illinois. I write about this in the book, how we get to the, you know, we're on the plane. We're, we're talking about, you know, the grandkids and football. Uh, he writes a couple things down. It wasn't like he was preparing a detailed speech or anything like that. And we get to the, the convention center uh, in Springfield and the person greets him and says, congratulations, sir. You just broke the 36-year record of this convention center. And he says, well, who had it 36 years ago? And they said, Elton John. And he turns to me and says, Jared, imagine how much better I'd do if I had a guitar. Right. And so we go in there. And he speaks for about an hour, no notes, contemporaneous, uh, you know, and just and, – and he, he basically was saying things on policies that I, I'd never really gone too deep on. But he spoke about Common Core, uh, which was interesting. So he says, we're going to end Common Core and we're going to send it to the states. And the people there were going crazy. They were supporting that. And it surprised you because Jeb Bush was pushing Common Core. That would seem to be a Republican tenant at the time. Well, it wasn't just Jeb Bush. I mean it was – you know, again, on the Upper East Side, I felt like I was in a very worldly – uh, diverse place, right? Be with the heads of the banks, the heads of yeah. the, the fashion industry, the heads of the the technology, uh, the heads of the media. And I was at a, a a big charity gala a couple weeks earlier, where the the leader is a very successful businessman. Gets up there and says, "We are going to save children in this country. We are going to create equality. We are going to save our education system. We have to all support Common Core. Call your senators. Call your congressmen. This is a very influential group of people." And I said, "Why do they think one thing when Trump is saying the other thing?" And I was walking around. The, the the rally there was about twenty thousand fifteen. No one 20, knew who you were at that time. Nobody knew me, so I was talking to people, getting to know. It was people. They were old. They were young. They were male. They were female. They were white. They were uh, they were black. I mean, it was it was a diverse group of Americans who. And I I kind of said, these people feel like Trump is talking for them, and he was talking about trade, saying, "I'm not going to send your jobs overseas. I'm not going to send your children to these endless wars." And I I saw that there was a big disconnect. And I'd read actually Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, a couple months earlier. And that gave me kind of the intellectual framework to see what was happening. So on the plane ride back, so that, that that inspired me. I realized that Donald was speaking for people who felt like they didn't have a voice. It wasn't about right versus left. It was right. about outside versus in. And, and also in you chronicling this, it's so clear and everybody being that I know more people around the organization than just you. There was no collaboration with the Russians. There's no way that <laughs> – but yet it almost – it absolutely would have paralyzed me knowing – that you're, you had experience in jail. Your dad went to jail. You know what that's like. They were lining up. The Washington Post was writing. They were taking you to jail for collaborating with the Russians. You taught, you cooperated with them. It never happened. Having said that, you still forged straight ahead and had great accomplishments. But the one other conflict you talked about it was how traumatic it was to have your dad go to jail. And what it did, it actually ended up bringing your family, in my opinion, closer than it actually was. And one of the people that was involved with the campaign was the one who put your dad in jail, Governor Chris Christie. Here's what he said in 2019 uh, to Axios about why he wasn't chief of staff. Cut 28. Well, the longer term consequences for the president and for the country was that he didn't have the very best people in front of him 
to be able to make a full and fair decision about. And then he paid the price for that later on with people like Scott Pruitt, with people like Mike Flynn. I mean, we can go on and on. So in the end, this is a monumental staff failure that failed the president and as a result failed the country. And he was talking about he did the uh, he did the pregame case they win. These are the people you should hire. You looked at the you looked at Chris Christie's book and he was the prosecutor that put your dad in jail. And he said, I don't want any of these guys. Was it personal or was there something about what was in that binder? Yeah, nothing personal at all. You know, during uh, before Donald accepted Chris's endorsement, uh, he basically called my father and said, you know, what do you think? If you don't want me to do it, I, I shouldn't. I won't take it. My relationship with you is a lot of respect. You know, he felt like Christie was a total political animal. He got involved in a family dispute and really put a ton of pressure on my father. And I saw firsthand what it's like when somebody's under investigation and when, you know, you have a prosecutor with endless resources and endless ambition, really trying to apply pressure, subpoenaing everyone in your company, putting pressure in. Ultimately, uh, my father made a mistake and 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 paid a big price for it. But Donald was very gracious to call and say, "Are you okay with him?" My father. So he said, called your father. Donald Trump called your dad before uh, taking Christie's endorsement. And what my father said to him was, he said, "Look, this is much bigger than me. I'm very at peace with where my life is. You know, and I learned a lot from my experience. My life is amazing. I have my family. It's 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 given me a real sense of prioritization." Uh, do, do whatever's best for you, and I encourage you to do it. So, uh, at that point, I, I had a, a meeting I describe in the book with Chris and with uh, and with uh, with Donald and with Corey Lewandowski, where I basically said, "Look, I'm I'm okay with this, and I'll support it fully." And and you know, just you know, let let let's put our personal issues to the side. And let's focus on it. When Trump won, uh, the book was opened by Steve Mnuchin, who was a very competent person, Steve Bannon, Jeff Sessions. Uh, Mike Pence and everyone looked at it and said, these are all of the people from the swamp who basically we we're saying we wanted to get rid of. And and Christie, you have to keep in mind at the time, he was finishing his term in New Jersey. His approval rating was, I think, in the single digits. He was maybe nine, maybe eight, maybe it was like the low teens. So it wasn't like he was the world's most accomplished governor, but he's a very good talker. And so he goes on for, for a long time, always explaining why things that didn't happen if only you would have listened to him, everything would have been perfect. So I, I just think it's a very self-serving narrative, and I, I don't buy it at all. And I do think, again, Trump made some right decisions. He made some wrong decisions, but he's an adjuster. Right. His first night that he ever slept in Washington was in the White House, and he was not a mayor. He was not a governor. And I think a lot of it was him figuring out what he wanted, what kind of people he wanted around it. But he also brought a lot of outsiders to Washington. One of the best decisions I believe he made, which was very frustrating to us in the first year – was he basically said anyone who signed one of these letters against him, he was not going to allow to work in the administration. And if you think about it, to be to work in an administration, you had to be qualified. How were you qualified? You worked in a previous administration. So you know, what, what, the, what the voters hated was what that – What do you mean by signing letters? What letters? So there were all these letters that were signed by defense people or, or you know, former secretaries basically saying that Donald Trump was not qualified to be in office and Hillary Clinton would hold them up as campaign – uh, tools, but what that basically did was it showed that these were the people from the swamp. These were the people who were part of the career political gotcha. class, and it and it excluded a lot of people who were qualified on paper because they'd served before. But these people were either part of the Bush dynasty or the Clinton dynasty, and so Trump brought a whole new era of people to Washington who were from the business sector, who had you know created jobs, who had gotten things right. done. Some of them worked out. Some of them, you know, who who, who we well, thought Tillerson was a disaster. You described Tillerson was absolutely terrible, and you he, he had a problem with you, correct? Yeah, I, I think it was misguided. We we got along very very well in the beginning because I recognized that he had uh, he had a very big deficiency and that he didn't understand the president. And and he, I think, coming as a CEO of a major corporation, 
he had a couple things uh, that, that were just working against him. One is, is, is he was a very isolating person. He had a chief of staff that basically did. He hollowed out the State Department, lost he didn't the work building. Hard. I don't know. I, I'm sure he put yeah. a lot of hours in. I think he didn't work efficiently. But you know, when you run a big oil company, it's different. I, I think that he didn't accept the fact that his job. He was a secretary. We don't call them ministers in America. We call them secretaries because it's a delegated authority from the president. And he thought that his job was to create the foreign policy, and he dis- disagreed with what President Trump wanted to do. And, and he didn't love the fact that you were doing the Abraham Accords and working with Middle East peace, and he thought it was a folly, correct? And the trade deals that you were working out, he uh, he seemed to be doubting you in a, a few every step of the way. So I was given two files by the president. One was to work on the U.S.-Mexico relationship, with the, which you remember in the 2016 campaign. I, I orchestrated President Trump's uh, secret trip to Mexico, which turned out to be a massive success for the campaign, and it surprised everybody. Then the second one, which he volunteered me for, was Middle East peace. And I, I don't know why he did that. I could only assume he figured it can't get any worse because it was a mess at the time. ISIS had a caliphate the size of Ohio. Iran was enriched with cash. All of our allies were betrayed. And everyone who'd worked on it in the past 25 years, I, I read a funny story. I meet with the head of the Council on Foreign Relations and I lay out my approach to him on the Middle East. And I said, well, what do you think? Do I have a chance? And he says, absolutely not. I said, why are you so negative? He says, Jared, Nobody's made any money betting on success in the Middle East in the last 25 years. And I said, OK, that's a good point. How many peace agreements you work out with? Uh, six peace agreements. Six peace agreements. I think you got it. Uh, and unfortunately, this administration's on the cusp of uh, undoing some of it by going back to the Iran deal. Uh, we're going to be more back, uh, back in a moment with Jared Kushner. Uh, the name of the book is Breaking History, a White House memoir. Don't move. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So this deal, which is supposed to stop nuclear weapon, weapons in the Middle East and the proliferation of weapons of mass death in this neighborhood and beyond, it will actually cause the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And the Middle East will be crisscrossed by nuclear tripwires. It will make the Middle East a powder keg, a nuclear powder keg. This is... What shall I tell you? Use a, a clinical term from psychiatry. This is madness. This is the height of folly. Yeah. This shouldn't. And that was Benjamin Netanyahu on Fox and Friends one hour ago. Jared Kushner here. Jared, one of the first things the administration did, yours, that you were a senior advisor to, was to rip up this deal. They were using their money that they were making from oil, be able to sell it to fund Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, ISIS, uh, chaos in the Middle East, uh, prop up Assad, and. You guys tore it up and isolated them. The result, I probably, if you didn't do that, you probably wouldn't have had any of the Abraham Accords. Is that correct? No, 100 percent. So, so uh, President Trump had a fully different approach from not just the previous administration but from the previous two administrations. So it really was a more of a rebuke of, of the establishment than it was the Democrats. And uh, he just saw everything for what it was, which was that the Iran deal was an awful deal. It gave them a glide path to a nuclear weapon and then it gave them all this money. Which Why would they go back into it? I, I, it, I think it's a religious issue. Maybe it's a pride issue. It, it makes absolutely no sense from a tactical point of view. But again, keep in mind, these are the same people who did the deal the first time who are in power now. And I think maybe it's hard for them to, to see that they're wrong. I mean, when, when we came in, when they were coming in, I, I sat and I gave them you know briefings and I said, guys, the Middle East has changed fundamentally in the last four years. Right? When we came in, we had ISIS had a caliphate the size of Ohio. Syria was in a civil war. 500,000 people were dead. Right now, we have in the last six months, six peace deals. Maybe the way to make peace is to keep doing what's happening. Our vision was to create an arc of stability. 
from Haifa to Muscat and Oman and figure out how do you create, you know, economic interactivity between them, uh, flights, you know, security. And then by doing that, you can draw Iraq into that sphere. And then over time, keep Iran isolated. We, we had them basically broke at the time. We took their oil down from 2.6 million barrels a day to about 100,000 barrels a day and let them come to you and, and hold out the terms that make sense where they're not going to have a nuclear weapon and they're not going to cause problem. If they want to join the, the, the club of respectable nations right. trying to make their citizens better – then make that available. You also uh, hit it off with MBS, who has since, with Khashoggi and everything like that, been, a, say the least, a controversial figure. Uh, is he somebody you're doing business with now so, as in the private sector? So uh, right now, obviously, being successful in that region was because I was able to work with all the great leaders. You just had uh, Bibi Netanyahu on. Bibi is an absolute historic figure. He stayed in your bedroom when you were Yeah, but, but but even more than that, look, what he's done for Israel – with regards to creating economic stability and, and economic thriving there when he was the economy minister, what he's done as as prime minister to make yeah. it a, a powerhouse. You had him. You had Mohammed bin Zayed. You had MBS who's changing Saudi Arabia. The way we got these deals done is we had all of the right people in the right places at the right time working together to do the right things. And I think that the, the momentum we did was, was incredible. Uh, when I left government, obviously I was a businessman before and now I'm a businessman uh, now, my, my, I couldn't be doing the diplomatic work anymore, even though there was so much momentum. And so I was very fortunate that that, that uh, PIF, which is uh, their, their sovereign fund, uh, which is one of the top tier investors in the world, was willing to invest with me. And we're investing in Israeli companies, American mm-hmm. companies. And we're trying to use economics to bring people closer together because when people have ties, they're less likely to go to war. And so right. that's that's been a lot of what we've been working on. Uh, that's true. Uh, when you look right now, why do you think President Trump lost and do you think he lost the election? So I, I think that what he accomplished over four years was extraordinary and that was one of the primary reasons why I write the book. I, I think that the media for four years was focused on chasing fire engines and, and trying to drive sensationalism uh, and it got to the point where it really wasn't real news and what President Trump did was not an accident, right? We had uh, the wealth gap was shrinking, uh, wages were rising especially for, 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 for the middle class. Uh, inflation was low, gas prices were low, uh, the world was peaceful, you had no wars in Europe, China was under control. And so for me, a big part of it was to say these policies worked and his governance worked. I think that what happened when we had COVID was they the, the Democrats basically used that as a as a as an excuse to change a lot of the voting rules. You had a but, ton but I of- did notice after January, uh, even before after the election, you just said this is it was a weird election. No doubt about it. a lot of mail-in votes, but I never heard from you after, and I assume because I, I think the president lost the election. Um, do you feel as though he lost the election? Look, the, the, Joe Biden is the president today, and it's and he is an absolutely awful president. It is, uh, it, it is, it has been terrible for the country. I mean, you, again, like I, I see all of the policies we implemented that they reversed, like at the border, you know, and down south. I mean, they they ripped everything up day one because it was Trump policies, and now all of a sudden today, it's I'm the worst reading, ever. And I'm reading today in the paper, you have two young children who died drowning and they're saying this is a humane policy. You have, you know, human traffickers, human smugglers, uh, you know, that's on the rise. You're, you're putting billions of dollars into the pockets of the cartels. Does it make it's, you want to go back again? Uh, so I, I believe very firmly that people are supposed to I, – I do so encourage – four years in that. I know you said I, that. I, I believe that people should, uh, should, should come in and serve and then go back to the private sector. And like I said to you – uh, if you read the book, you see – and by the way, writing it brought back a lot of memories that I'd kind of suppressed as well, right, to the degree that the first year was so vicious, so hard you know, with the investigations and some of the what I'd call subpar people. 
um, it was a very hard experience uh, to, to, to have. Um, look, you know, being called to serve your country is a great honor and it's a, it's a, it's a great opportunity to do good. I'm so proud of the work we did. But right now I, I really am loving the time being a father. I'm loving the time in the private yeah. sector. And, and I think that, you know, being in Miami is incredible. And so for me, that, that really is uh, something where I'm very excited about. Breaking history at the end of the book. Jared Kushner, thanks so much. I'll talk to you this week on One Nation. Perfect. I'm looking forward, Brian. Right. Thank you so much. Jared Kushner. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. You know, my main problem with Jared is very simple, and it and it uh, boiled over. I write about it in my book. It boiled over in this oh, in this meeting in Jared's office in the summer of 2019. And I walked in. It was he called the meeting. It was Jared, Brad Parscale, Ron and McDaniel, the head of the RNC, still is, and Mick Mulvaney, then chief of staff. And it boiled over where Jared said, oh, I had no idea how much you hated me, Kelly. And I said, Jared, I don't hate you. Don't flatter yourself. I don't understand you. We're three plus years into this. The president wants us to work together. And all you do is try to get get in my way. You roll your eyes. You roll me. The president says, work together on this, the two of you. And you give him a very flippant shore. And then you tell people I'm a leaker. Of course, he had people on the government payroll who were leaking left and right. So that's just some of the sparring back and forth that you write about in your book. Jared Kushner, I have negotiated with him successfully, when, uh, former senior advisor to President Trump. His book, Breaking History, is there. So, uh, of course, Kellyanne came out with a book last month. So you guys didn't, didn't see eye to eye in a few things. Do you remember the situation? Yeah, so so we really didn't work that closely together. You know, we she was on the campaign for the last uh, couple months, and, and she did a very good job with the communication. She was on television uh, all the time, and, and did really, really strong. Everyone else that. was jumping ship. She she stayed. Well, she was a little shaky during that time, but she she got to the right place. But but uh, but again, she did a good job advocating for the president on television. Uh, and uh, then we got to the White House. It was about getting things done, and I was more kind of working on policies and getting things done. And she was in the communication. So she really doesn't show up much in my book because again, I was working on Middle East peace. I was working on securing the border, building the wall. I was working on, uh, you know, Operation Warp Speed. I was working on prison reform. And I think she was working on other things. So again, I, I had no problems with her. I just tried to avoid a little bit because she did a lot of uh, interacting with the media. And I think she had different things she was working on. And I had my own things I was working on. And a guy that you did not see eye to eye with who, who was an infighter is Steve Bannon, who didn't last long. And when he left the White House, he quickly combined with another book to really hit the president pretty hard when he left. What was that like, being that you left the business world and then you suddenly had to deal in the White House with Steve Bannon at that time, Reince Priebus, who seemed to combine against you? So Steve actually was a phenomenal ally on the campaign. He was very, very helpful uh, with the campaign. He's extremely smart. Yeah, he he he's a he, he was, again, like I said, he was a great partner on the campaign. And then when we got to the White House, I don't know why he 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 started going after me. I write a scene uh, where I think you know I tried to mediate between him and Gary Cohn uh, because they were leaking on each other, and he basically said I'm going to break you in half. And maybe he thought I was siding with them over him, but I think we agreed on a lot of the policies. We agreed on securing the border. We agreed on uh, more protectionist trade policy, uh, and uh, we agreed on the deregulation. But all of a sudden, I felt like I was getting leaked on all over the place, and I was very out of my element. I'd never been in Washington. I I, I didn't talk to the press at all. Like, how did I get here? <laughs> and, and and I I basically had an inflection point. I write about this where I said, okay, you know, if I have to fight back, and and I I can either try to leak back at him, or I could do my game. And I kind of said, look, I can never out leak a leaker. Like, I'm, if your heart's not in it and you're not good at it, you're never going to beat somebody who's good at it. 
And so I basically said, look, the, the only way that I can I can sustain is I have to get tighter, uh, just focus on getting things done, and that's the best way to do it. So I played the long game, and ultimately, what I what I found with my uh, my opponents that I write about in the book is that I actually never defeated them. What happened was is I was able to kind of create a foundation for myself where I can focus on getting my things done, and often they blew themselves up, which is what happened with Steve. And so, look, I, I wish him well. He was I, I supported his pardon at the end. He was there. Uh, for us in, in the first campaign when very few people were. Um, and, you know, I wish him nothing but the best. Right. And he's back with the president. He's back tight with the president, it seems. Uh, again, I, I you never know what the perception is and, and what's actually happening. But he's definitely become a very strong voice uh, for MAGA. But one thing I will say, too, like he, he's very big into the, the R&R, Republican on Republican Civil War stuff. And that was his thing at Breitbart. And and I think that fighting the establishment was a good thing. But when you're governing, right. uh, what I saw is that the parties are not ubiquitous, right? They're basically collections of tribes. And if you want to pass legislation and get things done, you need to figure out how to unite the tribes and get people together. And, and maybe that's why he wasn't the best uh, influence when he was in the White House. Uh, and also some of the other battles. Mick Mulvaney had a rival and was uh, Pat Cipollone, mm-hmm. correct? You had the referee between them. I had no idea that they weren't getting along, but it was a pretty critical time because right after you get done with the Russia investigation, you got the impeachment and you realize these guys got to find a way uh, and you had to get involved in that again. Yeah. So that was during what I call season three, right? My third year there, we had different staff and I, I, I saw so many people come and go that, you know, I kept trying to you adjust. You like both. I actually got along very well with both. I thought they both had their strengths. But I was in this like weird scene where Mick would come into my office and complain about Pat, how Pat was leaking on him. And then Pat would come to my office and complain about how Mick was leaking on him. And I was like, guys, like the president has a pretty existential threat here, which is they're trying to impeach him. The good news is – and by the way, this this happened with Russia. This happened with the Ukraine. Is like the Democrats would constantly pick the worst things to go after. And I would always joke with Trump on, on the Russian things. I'd say, look, the good news is, is they're going after you on probably the thing that you're most innocent of of anything you've ever been accused of, right? <laughs> so the impeachment, they, they chose a stupid thing to try to impeach him on. And so we said, let's make him pay a political price. But you have to make sure you have the right legal strategy, the right communication strategy. And it doesn't work when the chief of staff and the chief legal counsel are fighting with each other. And so for me, after my kind of first year, I tried to really stay in my lane a lot more and say, you know, everyone was criticizing me for getting involved. And by the way, probably rightly so, right? I, I viewed it as a business guy. There's a problem. You have to get involved and try to fix it. But the more I tried to fix other people's problems, the more they would start leaking on me and resenting I was involved. So I kind of got tighter. And I saw here that this was an existential threat for the president with the impeachment. I had to get involved. I tried working with both. It really wasn't working. So I, I created a separate comms team uh, mm-hmm. To come in, I, I read actually a bunch of books on it, and and I saw how uh, Panetta did it for Clinton. And Panetta was, I think, probably one of the top two chiefs of staff that I studied uh, when I was in there. And he basically brought in uh, a, a lawyer named Shelburne, who who, who reported um, directly, and and they basically created a pod that was able to fight the impeachment. We brought in this guy Tony Sagi, who was phenomenal. Um, you know, Hogan, you know, Gidley came in, was phenomenal. Uh, Pam Bondi, the right. lawyers, and we just pummeled them. And, and from start of impeachment to end, President Trump's approval rating went up 10 points. Right. And then you had the one at the end uh, before you left. And now you have a, a mini one now with uh, the raid with the January 6th investigation. And now you have the raid uh, on Mar-a-Lago where it stands right now. Um, have you thought about what more you could have got done had you not had the Ukrainian phone call had you not had the phony Russia investigation? So I, I think the biggest impediment was COVID, right? By, by by year three, we'd actually gotten pretty good at it and we were used to it operating in a very hostile, combative environment. 
And I think Trump had finally figured out how to move all the levers of power. We had great people in all the different areas. Uh, the deregulation was happening amazingly. Again, the year before Trump was elected, there were six million man hours in America spent uh, complying with new regulations. And then for four years, you had the first four years in our history where there was a net decrease in our country in the cost of regulations, which helped small businesses. It's all coming back yeah, now. Which, which they're putting back, which is crazy. But, 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 but bottom line is I think COVID held us back. Uh, we, we were very close to the Middle East. I mean we really had six peace deals. We had great momentum. I think we could have gone six more uh, at least. And, um, and, and I think the other thing that I, I really wish we would have made more progress on was – uh, was was immigration. We, we developed a, a merit-based immigration system. I got called in uh, after year two. Again, I write about this in the book where Trump does the shutdown. I just got my criminal justice reform done that I worked so hard on. I write about how that almost the died. Jeff Sessions tried to stop you every step of the way. A lot of people. Jeff Sessions, McConnell, again. And by the way, the Democrats too. John Lewis tried to stop it. I mean, we, we, we worked through and it was really like standing on a ball and navigating. We got it done. Incredible. 87 votes in the Senate with an asterisk because I think Burr voted against it because he was pissed at Tim Scott on something and Lindsey Graham was in Afghanistan. So we would have had 89, but I'm not bitter about that. Um, but but so we get that done and Trump calls me in a couple hours later and says, why aren't you working on immigration? I said, well, Kelly told me not to work. He said, well, look, I'm here for two years and I don't have a wall. You know, Kelly's failed me. Bannon's failed me. Nobody's gotten me the wall. Paul Ryan. Uh, Paul Ryan. He says, congratulations. You're in charge of the wall. I said, OK. So so I worked actually with, with Mick, did a great job, and uh, Cipollone did a great job. You repurposed defense spending. If they wouldn't give you more point one point four or 1.8, you repurposed defense spending in order to build the wall. Well, we used uh, – we found a lot of different change under couch cushions and within the federal government. And, uh, and actually, Stephen Miller was very helpful. And, and we, we spent um, – we, we got – uh, 470 miles done by the end, and we had another 300 miles, which would have really secured it. Um, that that the Biden administration scrapped. So, but, that but we paid for already. Uh, we paid for everything. So but, it's paid for to rust in the desert right now. I guess that's their policy. I don't understand it. And by the way, border. When I coming from New York, people said the border is xenophobic. It's racist. It is a very common sense thing. It's a physical barrier to protect your sovereignty and to allow border patrol agents to have more utilization. And but the one that I also regret was we developed an amazing merit based immigration system, which you know, Trump referred to as the big beautiful door, where he wanted to welcome people to the country, but he wanted them to come legally. And you want people who are going to grow your GDP, grow your wages, not depress wages. And we really developed an amazing amazing system that I think would have actually been phenomenal for, for our country. And I really hope one day it gets implemented. Yeah, so do I. Anthony Fauci said this yesterday on our channel about Cut 18. Do you regret the shutdown, the sweeping shutdown that some yeah. said made things worse? No, I, I, I don't, uh, Neil. And in fact, I think we need to make sure that your listeners understand I didn't shut down anything. There was a lot of consideration among the White House task force that we were reaching a point where the hospitals, such as in New York City and other places, were being strained to the point of practically being overwhelmed. Can you bring us inside those meetings? What, what was he pushing you guys to do? So, so first of all, he's master with words and on being on all sides of things. But, but what I'd say is in the beginning, the first 15 days that we did to slot, stop the spread, that, that made a very big difference, right? The, hot, the, 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 the rate of growth and spread of the virus was, was huge. The hospitals were running out of capacity. And we did not have enough medical supplies in the country to deal with it. So but by doing the first 15 days where we got people to kind of stay in place a little bit more – that enabled us to, to to stimulate supplies. And again, I go through this in the book, how we did it. We were facing improbable challenges. We got all the bureaucrats out of the way and we brought private sector and the military in and we just made miracle after miracle after miracle happen in order to get the supplies we needed 
to different places. And I write about how we did it, but it was very, very improbable, those things. After that, it became um, – I, I think the media weaponized COVID uh, against Trump in a very aggressive way. Right? Well, do you think he did too? Because he had a lot of friends in the media. You had, you had Governor Cuomo says, I was going – I was backdooring the administration with Fauci. He, he spent an awful lot of time talking with the media. Again, he was in my office once. His phone rings. It you know, shows up Jim Acosta. I wrote about this. And it's like, come on, man. Like we're supposed to all be on the same team and this is a pandemic. Let's put our jerseys aside and let's focus on going. And, and the thing that frustrated a lot of people too was that you know he was – you know, one of the nation's foremost experts. I use experts, you know, in quotes because I think you have a lot of experts in government who, uh, who, who quite frankly, you know, shouldn't be there. Um, but he's an expert. He's been in the task force. We're scaling the testing as quickly as possible, right? And, and I always say when you have a problem, there's three different things that that can constrain you. It's either imagination, it's money, or it's gravity. Here we had an amazing plan which we developed very quickly. We had unlimited capital to spend to 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 stimulate it, but we had to make Q-tips, right? And, and basically, we just didn't have enough Q-tips in this country. And I found that it was always the lowest cost wow. item that becomes your biggest bottleneck. And so we we did DPAs. We were working with American Cotton. We were flying them in from all over the world. But everyone in the world was looking for the same product. So we're scaling as quickly as we can. You need to make the reagents. You need to make the the the, 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 gotcha. the transfer media. And, and so we're scaling it all up. We figured out miracles to do it. And he goes on television and instead of saying, well, we're doing – this is what we're doing. This is where we are today. It's faster than anyone in the world. He says, we're just not there yet. I'm saying, what is this guy, a sportscaster? <laughs> like you know, he's literally in the meeting. He's on the task force. He was there even before me. I came in to try to clean up the problem that they left and and, and it's just – it would have been much- – You don't need an analyst. You need an advocate that was telling the truth behind the scenes that could express to the American people Just to explain to them what the problem was. Why we were where we were and what we were doing to fix it and why pe- – what people could do best to get there. So I-, I think COVID became very political, very emotional for a lot of people. But again, I, I think that you know Operation Warp Speed that we did in, in this book, which again you know, he said couldn't be done in a year and a half, um, we ended up getting a vaccine, the fastest vaccine in history because President Trump came in and said, get it done. We hired the right people. We, we cut all the bureaucracy out and The Lancet just published a study that said that that saved 20 million lives. Well, look, I, I, that's all true. And I know when the president says it, he gets when he goes brings up the vaccines, he says, "Why are people booing me at these events when I bring up the vaccine?" I know the answer; it's the mandate. So if you tell the people take the vaccine, it works. I'll show you the study. It's still my decision. When you tell us take the vaccine or you're fired, take the vaccine or you're not allowed in, that's when the American people just can't get their head around it. Some overreact and get two masks and five vaccines and six boosters, and others don't. Do you agree with that? A thousand percent. We we were never for vaccines. We never impose. Uh, we were never for mandates. We never imposed mandates. But I do think that the vaccine was, was a miracle. I think it was it was safe. At least the first iteration. I thought it was very effective, uh, historically effective. Right. Um, but it should definitely be up to people whether they they choose to use. And it you or have not. to admit to people that it's a variant now. Uh, the vaccine is not going to be as effective as a variant. So we're worried about. So the minute you start telling it's going to work anyway, and they get it, and they get it two or three times. Anthony Fauci got it. The president got. Everyone's getting it. That's when I think credibility got lost and, and politics dug in. So lastly, uh, Jared, in writing this book, what did the president say? Did he read all of it? Did, he, did you summarize it for him? Were you worried about him reading it? So, so I didn't show it to him beforehand because I really wanted it to be my story. Um, but I do think that I was able to show people a lot of very intimate moments. I, I think that – People are always speculating on what Trump is like and I always say the truth is hiding in plain sight. But what I wanted people to say and another criticism people give of him is they'll say, OK, I love his policies but I wish he 
would be act like a normal person. Well, I always say if he acted like a normal person, A, he probably would have been president. And I think that he probably wouldn't have been as successful as president if he was. So what I want people to do in this book is is read it and then really judge for themselves how Trump used his unique personality and his unique outsider approach to take on a Washington that was very hostile, that I think our founding fathers designed a great system, but it needed a shock to the system. He was that shock, and I think he got better and better at it as he went. And what he said to me when I gave it to him is he said, look, this is a very important book. I'm glad that uh, that somebody wrote a book that's really going to talk about what actually happened in the room, and he says, I'm going to read it. So, and he, and he started yeah. reading it, and he's given me some compliments on it so far. And um, and again, I I hope he's proud of it. I don't know if he'll like anything. You, you guys couldn't Everything. be more different, but you respect how different both of you are with each other, and that that comes across clearly how he oh. feels about you and the job he gave you. Thank you. And I, I always right. noticed that there was only one of us that was elected. It was him. And so <laughs> if I disagreed, I was grateful that he gave me the opportunity to do it. But I was an advisor. Sometimes he listened. Sometimes he didn't. But we had a lot of fun. Breaking history, the name of the book, Jared Kushner. Thanks so much for the quality time. Great. Thank you so much, Brian. Great to be with yeah. you. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I have always had an open mind and have said right from the get-go that we should keep an open mind as to the origin. But as more and more data came in, including now recent papers from highly qualified virologists from many different countries have shown that it is much more likely that is a natural occurrence. <laughs> He's so full of it. It's unbelievable. Uh, that is Anthony Fauci. I cannot wait for him to get in front of Congress in December. Actually, he's going to be old news by then, my hope. And, and I hope it's a Republican Congress. I think it's an excellent shot there's going to be a Republican senator. Uh, I, uh, uh, Jared Kushner stayed an extra segment. Always appreciate it. You can only get to a, a very small portion of his book, even in a 45-minute interview, which is probably 35 minutes with commercials, but there's so much interesting things in there, especially if you're passionate about what really went on with the Trump administration. I think you'll be fascinated by it. So listen, just a quick note. If you want a red, white, and blue night on stage, which is unscripted, but it's unforgettable, which looks back at our history in a 1776 way, not a 1619 way, go to briankillme.com. Join me in Albany at the Egg, September 8th on the 12th. I'll be in Brandon, Mississippi, and then in the 13th, I'll be in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, BrianKillMe.com, um, and then there's VIP opportunities where I can meet and talk to you before. Uh, hope to see you all out there. Brian Kilme Show, so glad you're here. Fox News Radio Studios in New York City. Fresh off the set of Fox and Friends. It's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're going to be joined by Lee Zeldin in a matter of moments. Martha McCallum at the bottom of the hour. Uh, we're following the news. We're expecting the president of the United States to finally work again. He, uh, I think, is going to be talking about student loans, and we'll discuss that. Uh, also, a quick reminder... If uh, you're going to be in the Albany area, September 8th, in and around there. If you're going to be in Saratoga Springs, you might as well stay an extra week after the Travers and go to the Egg. Uh, we're going to have a red, white, and blue. Look back at our history, 1776, not 1619. Uh, BrianKillMe.com for tickets. It'll be fun. Let's get to the big three.
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I didn't shut down anything. We didn't recommend shutting everything down. We wanted to cause a pause to remember the terminology to flatten the curve. Uh, Such a revisionist. Fauci fallout. The disgraced doctor now says he didn't lock down a mandate or anyone or anything. What kind of exit strategy is this? Lying out the door, denying what we all saw and lived. Why is he really leaving? Maybe that's the story. Number two. The loan forgiveness suggestion is really, in my mind, would create so many perverse incentives, starting with, to, to Larry Summers' point, the increasing of, tu- of tuition costs. Unforgivable. Student loan forgiveness is expected to be announced today by President Biden. It's a plea and play for your votes and even more. Uh, some of his now side of the story cry foul. Some of his side of the story cry foul, like Larry Summers. We're going to look at the fallout. Number one. The National Archives thought they had it all. Turns out they didn't. For reasons that are probably pretty compelling, the Department of Justice felt it had no choice but to go in and seek a a search warrant. Keyword, probably pretty compelling because we don't know. Getting complicated. Rate fallout accelerates on all sides as Trump and DOJ try to bracket out their cases. The difference, Trump is front and center and DOJ and FBI is leaks through New York Times and Washington Post. And questions emerge on how... Uh, much President Biden actually knew. So let's bring in Congressman Lee Zeldin, our Republican gubernatorial candidate. Uh, welcome back, Congressman. Hey, it's always great to be with you, Brian. Hey, uh, so Congressman, first off, what is your take on this investigation? I know in Jared Kushner's book, I write that uh, you actually went to see him because you felt as though the president wasn't getting his communication out when it comes to the impeachment with Mark Meadows before he was chief of staff as member of the Freedom Caucus. Do you think the president's effectively communicating now his side of the story? I mean, you know, in some respect, I would say, yes, absolutely, when you show up with receipts. Like, for example, Nora O'Donnell from CBS put out this story trying to debunk President Trump, uh, the claim that passports were taken. Now. President Trump had the receipts, and he was able to provide that. Now, the way things work with, you know, not Brian Kilmeade, but other aspects of the the media out there holding the the left's water, there's no correction to that original story trying to fact-check President Trump. Uh, There isn't, you know, you don't see them deleting their tweet. Uh, And the, the information is out there. This is the whole M.O. for going after President Trump. So here's the thing, as far as an effective communications plan President Trump is outmanned, outgunned. There are people who day in and day out will utilize every lever of of power, whether it's congressional Democrats in the White House uh, and the the Department of Justice, it's members of the media, it's social media algorithms, big tech. President Trump can't on his own be able to go up against all of this to get his side out the way that you know we would reflect and say yeah it's all fair equal and balanced uh, but i would say in some respects we've seen him from one aspect of this to another uh, be able to be effective to the best that he can uh, I, I think that the uh, the department of justice 
in many respects has mishandled this. This doesn't pass a smell test. People who many people don't even like President Trump have been weighing in with their concerns that this doesn't seem right. Uh, and clearly, if there was a Republican president who came in January of 2025 and then you uh, have your Justice Department go raid President Biden's bedroom and bathroom and closets and just ta- you know, start taking everything, including passports and more, you're going to have, uh, you, you know, you'd have a massive outcry. People need to look at this on the other foot so they're not completely hypocritical, which right now the double standards and hypocrisy, they're running right. rampant. So the big story, uh, you know, we have uh, great affiliates here in New York, 77 WABC. We, we're watching every day on Fox and Friends. The buses pull up, and there the five buses for the first time from Texas into the Port Authority letting off illegal immigrants. Came here illegally, uh, processed, and put through, and now they're going to be put up in New York City hotels. Those are the ones that aren't flown into Westchester or Newburgh or MacArthur Airport and dropped into our schools, into our cities. And they'd be given phones, hotel rooms, and health care. What would, what would, uh, how does Congressman Lee Zeldin of Long Island feel, and how does the governor, gubernatorial candidate, feel about this? As the member of Congress, I will say that the Biden administration absolutely must do more to finish construction of the border wall and catch and release, enforce the Remain in Mexico policy, stop incentivizing and rewarding illegal entry, support customs and border patrol. There's a reason for this desperation, this crisis on our border where Governor Abbott feels the need to be taking these measures to get the attention of President Biden and his allies. Now, at the state level and the city level, you have these sanctuary state, sanctuary city policies that don't just reward those who are here, but it sends a message to others who might be thinking about coming and they have a choice of you know, two ways of getting here. One is you can say, well, what's the rules? I want to go to America legally. I have an American dream. And then they're in a line. And then there are other people who say, you know what, I'm just going to go on my own because all these other people are doing it. They're getting away with it. They're being rewarded for it. So I believe that whether it's, you know, inside of New York, New York City, uh, where but they even try to provide non-citizens the right to vote, and that has been overturned by the court. And at the state level, you see it with policies. One is called a green light law. When they provided the driver's licenses to people who are illegally in the country, they also cut off the coordination and cooperation between federal law enforcement and state and local authorities in a way, saying the federal government can't be accessing the Department of Motor Vehicle Records. And then you also see it on the budget impact. This is another opportunity to set this right. About a year and a half ago, when the state was doing their state budget, they created a multi-billion dollar, what they called excluded worker fund, money for people who are not legally in the country. They did it again in this current state budget. One of the big ticket items is expanding free health care. And there are other people who are hardworking, law-abiding New Yorkers, people who are here legally, and they're busting but, their but butt. Congressman, are you, their small business. No, I, I, I think it's totally. Un, I think it's totally unfair. Do you feel as though gov- you do? We want. Do you want Governor Abbott to stop sending buses here? He's he's desperate. What we really, I mean, I don't know what else he can do. He has to get the attention of President Biden and his allies. As a as a New Yorker, selfishly, if I was to look at the impacts, you know, on New York budgetary and beyond, you you don't want to see a crisis at our southern border show up on the doorsteps of New York. 
But I understand what's going on right there in Texas. So my anger, my frustration, my call to action, it's not directed at Governor Abbott. It's directed to President Biden and the Biden administration. Couple of things. Uh, so that's where it is right now. Would you? Are you in support of putting them in five-star hotels? Absolutely not. No way. I mean, we can't afford it. This is a crazy expense. This isn't the right way to do it. Uh, and I, I have have a fear that this is only going to continue to get worse because there's a whole lot of people watching this who aren't yet right. in our country. And this is the decision point where they're saying, you know what? I have an American dream. I'm going to go on my own on this dangerous journey up into the United States, and I think I'm going to find myself maybe in a five-star hotel in Times Square next. A couple other things. Um, as we look at the at the polls right now, Survey USA has you down by 24 points. Uh, do you believe that you're losing 55 to 31? So we're tracking a poll, by the way, right now that we're down eight. But as far as that Survey USA poll that came out, it was a totally online poll. They uh, weren't using a list of registered voters. They weren't checking voter history. It, this is the same poll, same pollster, that just before the June Republican primary predicted that we were going to win the primary by two points. We were tracking, our poll said that we were going to win the primary by 21 points at the same time. And we ended up winning by 21. Our poll is spot on. Theirs was 19 points off. Uh, this is something that you see the left do playing games with polls. They try to stunt momentum, fundraising. There's a 0% chance. There's a less than 0% chance that this poll is anywhere close to accurate. However, with that being said... Anybody out there who feels any bit of purpose, confidence, motivation, whatever it is, you cannot think with the mindset that this is some type of a red wave where we need to jump on a board and ride it in. We have to create the wave. We need to work hard for the next two-plus months, whether you're in blue areas or red areas or purple, whether you're talking about a House race right. or a governor's race. Everyone everywhere has to be all in, taking well, nothing for granted. What do they say? What do you say to people who say, wow, you're in a, a blue state? And with the Tobbs decision, the states will decide whether uh, abortion is going to be 0 percent, 15 weeks, the way it is. Um, how would you, if you were governor, what would, it, what would you be pushing the legislation to, to back? In New York, they already codified far more than Roe. So the left is trying to create a huge electoral issue where, where if they were to be honest, they wouldn't be able to get away with it because when in New York, when we woke up the day after Dobbs, the law in the state was exactly the same as when we woke up the morning before Dobbs. In New York, the top issues are crime and the economy. Everywhere I go, whether I am in a red county or a blue county, Republican, right. Democrat, independent, crime and economy. We are winning the independent vote. We are winning everything right now outside of New York City. We're winning the Hispanic vote. The key comes down to we have to get to 29% of the vote in New York City. If we don't get 29% of the vote in New York City, I do not know any way that we can possibly win this race. Well, if we get more than 35% of the vote, I have no idea how we would lose the race. So let me we give you let me give you some out. stats. As of October, uh, August twenty first, total crime 
79,631 incidents. That's up 35% from 2021. Robberies up 40%. Burglaries up 32%. Assaults up 18%. Transit crime up almost 50%. You've seen Mayor Adams. Let's say he's sincere. He went up to the legislature and said, guys, get rid of no cash bail. It's not working. You've got to be able to put the, give the judges the opportunity to keep people in, in jail. You know what they told him? Uh, basically, uh, you, I'm not listening to you. Go back to New York City. So what would a Republican governor be able to do if a Democratic mayor can't do it? Well, when we all go to vote in New York November 8th, it's not just voting for a new governor, but it's also every single state Senate seat, every single state assembly seat. We have to elect people to the state legislature where we are breaking the supermajority, which is something that I – no is going to happen November 8th. We will break the supermajority that exists in the state legislature, uh, but that's going to impact votes. And obviously, as you point out with Mayor Adams's call, this isn't just some Republican versus Democrat position. There are Democratic allies to help. And Albany didn't just tell Mayor Adams to fly a kite. They were personally insulting him. Rosie O'Donnell's brother serves in the New York State Assembly. He went on social media, white, liberal, uh, assemblyman from New York City who went after the city's black mayor suggesting that dangerousness, that's the standard that they want to give judges discretion away, that dangerousness is code for black, as if Mayor Adams is you know, a racist in wanting to call for this cashless bail change. But if you want to take back our streets, we have to repeal cashless bail. We have to remove rogue DAs who refuse to enforce the law. We have to start supporting our men and women in law enforcement. They're attacking qualified immunity. In our correction facilities, our officers are getting assaulted as they limit solitary confinement, even though solitary confinement isn't what you see in the movies anymore. I mean, that's not the same thing either. There are so many ways that pro-criminal laws, lax DAs, lax judges are turning our streets and subways over to criminals. We have to save our state in order for us to be able to You're going to need that. help, though. You're going to need we Republicans to in there or sensible Democrats. No doubt. Uh, listen, uh, Congressman Lee Zeldin, uh, where are you going to be? Where p- can people see you? How can they support you? ZeldinFornewYork.com is our website. We're all over social media, and every day we are mm. all over New York State. So uh, you know, sign up for the updates, and hopefully wherever you are in all New York 62 counties, run across you sometime soon. A couple of things. Are you going to come out for the Massapequa Little League team? was that run uh yeah no they are they are our little hometown heroes here uh on long island uh what they put new york little league back on the map uh what an awesome run they got into the little league world series through pitching that no hitter so we are we are proud of them large larger than life these little kids had quite a run where you know an experience that they will never forget but for Long Islanders, a sense of pride, the really a highlight of the summer is watching how awesome they did. So we're all celebrating them. Yeah, for one day, we weren't talking about Massapequa and Seinfeld. It was Massapequa and Little League. Uh, yeah, that's right. Congressman Lee Zeldin, who wants to be the next governor of New York. Thanks so much, Congressman. Of course. Take care, Brian. All right. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll take your calls. And Martha McCallum uh, is with us. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. 
It's Brian Kilmeade. You have a couple of minutes. I want to go along with Congressman Lee Zeldin, who wants to be the next governor of New York. But Martha McCallum's here. Martha, this is almost like a bonus segment. Hello. So, uh, great to see you. It's always a bonus to hang out with you, Brian. Well, thank you very much. We're one of the few working this week. A lot of people decided this is going to just, they're going to just go right through the summer from today. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Um, I was off last week, so I kind of have that back to school feeling now. Right. I'm kind of really ready to go, and I'm excited about covering the midterms and. Uh, there's a lot of big stories going on, so um, I think it's good to be back. Right. There was a go. Of course, there's a Trump race. Did you to take cover. a vacation, or you're not allowed? Well, I think we. I just been dropping kids off at school, yeah. getting them ready for soccer, going around. I don't think I really took a vacation. A couple of days here and there, that type thing. Mm-hmm. It's one of those years where you know what it's like. Your family gets a little older, just wrangling them together gets. I harder. know. No, exactly. If you can get all your kids together at one time, it's right. a it's a minor miracle. Uh, and then. There's uh, also a lot going on, especially with uh, this election happening and the raid that took place. Was it tough watching the raid happen and not being on the air? Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Um, you know, I, I think – you know what really struck me? More the, questions the thing that now jumped out at me that right. day more than anything was that it happened at 6 in the morning and it didn't break until 6 o'clock that night. I don't know of a story, a larger story – that was kept under wraps for more hours than that story. People go by that house all the time. I mean, it's, it's sort of a tourist destination. I, I was amazed, actually, that they kept it under wraps for almost 12 hours. Right. And it was Trump that actually said they raided my house. It's right. Pretty, yeah. And the thing is— And no pr- police officer in Palm Beach, like, tipped off with some video, nothing, No, nobody. That's a good point. Because like, we're used to seeing security around What's going around on? Yeah. Right. I mean, will that make you think twice about your Mar-a-Lago membership? <laughs> uh, I don't have one, so right. it makes it an easy decision. I couldn't get into the storage room. There were so many locks on exactly. it. And I go, you know, why do I even want to be a member I think here? I remember that woman who, who got in and she had all kinds of phone devices in her back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. This claim that there was a standing order that any time President Trump picked up a a classified document and walked out of the Oval Office and went to the residence with it, it's somehow declassified, is laughable. So part and parcel of declassifying something is announcing to the rest of the federal government, this information is hereby declassified. Uh, you, You can't just, this claim that there was this standing order, it's a little like saying, the speed limit in the state of New Jersey is whatever the governor happens to be driving at at any particular moment without telling anybody. Jay Johnson weighing in, trying to bring some semblance of uh, law and order. Martha McCallum here, said to host her show, The Story at 3 o'clock. Martha, this thing is not going away. Now suddenly MSNBC and CNN have something to talk about. Do you think the Biden administration is happy this is the major story? Or do you think that they they well, met, they're upset that they didn't get a chance to take look, a bow it, from it, the legislation? It, it's not a um, it's a very straightforward contention to say that it has moved the emphasis off of inflation and crime and the border and other things that have been rating very high in voters' minds. And now you know it made it about this Mar-a-Lago raid twenty four seven at least for a while. And I think we're going to obviously keep keep dipping into this. There are so many different legal avenues where people are trying to go back, go after the former president. Uh, that it's hard to keep track of all of them. If one of them, if any one of them gets traction, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But uh, it's clearly taken the focus off of inflation. Off of inflation? The, no, no. There is no more inflation. We passed the Inflation Reduction Act. So I don't mean to correct you. I know you're on vacation. <laughs> There's no more inflation. Because ever since that passed, 
Everything went back to normal. But we haven't had a, a quarter of positive economic growth. So that would mean we're still in inflation because no, no. we have two quarters Excuse of back-to-back negative, negative inflationary I, negative I growth. Mean, I don't mean to correct you on my own show. <laughs> but but uh, back-to-back negative growth, that's so old school. That's so 19, Brian, that's so 2020. Drinking the Kool-Aid. Right. Drinking Drink the Kool-Aid. Absolutely. Just, uh, just because every major banking uh, investment firm has said, I feel like we're in an inflation. Right. I feel, I feel like we're in a recession. Uh, and the market dropped 600 points Monday. I was in a gas station the other day, and the, the woman behind the counter was just randomly chatting with this other person who was in the store. And she's like, don't even ask me about my about my utility bill. Don't even ask me. And, uh, and he goes, yeah. Good. He said, and the guy said, I didn't change a single thing last month, and it went up $100. And then she said, uh, she said, mine is in the grand territory. And this is just like a random conversation. We, that talk I heard le- we, we should talk more about housing about yes. what you're paying your housing expenses as opposed to your gas tank because gas tank is elective. Right. And you know what? I'm not going to I'm not going to go out. I'm probably not going to go to Montana this week or I'm probably not going to go out to Montauk if you're in New York. Uh, I just don't want to spend the money. If yeah. you are in a middle class and you're worried about your budget, it's just not worth it. But the home heating and air conditioning, that's what people are stunned by. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you uh, if you have a student loan though, you're about to get $10,000, so maybe that'll loosen things up. If I could just give you a suggestion. Mhm. Uh, Vladimir Putin's price hike. Uh, we can get him. We can get him to lower gas prices. Wait a second, he did. So we already played our card. So uh, the Putin price hike got us at five dollars a gas. So Putin has lowered the gas prices. Now it's three ninety. So they also said, hold on tight. Gas is going to go up again. And I think you're the business person. And correct me if I'm wrong. Doesn't that have everything to do with the fact that America adjusts their lifestyle and China keeps doing that zero COVID policy and they shut down major sections of their economy, which fuels the world economy? Absolutely. That consumption is down globally because the prices were high. Absolutely right. And you're still 75 cents higher than you were a year ago on gas prices. So if you're filling up your tank, that's a good chunk of change, right? The other thing I would mention is that Russia and all the sanctions that we put on them for the Ukraine war, which is now on its sixth month – completing six months, they have a great business deal going with China. They are now, the for three months in a row, they're the largest provider of oil and fuel to China for three months in a row, and China's buying it at a discount. So it's so working really well for both of our biggest adversaries have a terrific energy deal going between them. So I want you to hear what Bill Maher said when it comes, first off, when it comes to taxes. It doesn't really make me a conservative, does it, that I don't want to be absolutely robbed blind is there some number at which i go you know what you are just taking my money and wasting it and letting people steal it how i mean i i get the I get the idea that money can never be transferred except in a leaky bucket i accept that but this isn't a bucket anymore it's just the handle they're talking about PPP and all the people that scammed the system and the fake unemployment and all that. And he's pretty much outraged as we write another $3 billion check. Um, here's more from Bill Maher when he comes to what happened with Trump and kind of what we were discussing in the break about how this kind of empowered Trump. Listen. 85% of the people Trump endorsed won. 151 out of 178. Say what you want about Mr. Evil. But boy, what a politician. I mean, that's impressive in an evil way, but still <laughs> impressive. And listen to this. So, and there's 10 members of Congress who voted to impeach him, and he vowed to knock them off. It's so 
Tarantino movie. <laughs> He's going to get all ten. He got eight out of the ten. Four, four quit because they knew they'd lose and four lost. So he's citing it, and he also said this empowered him. The raid empowered him. He said the guy that should be the angriest is DeSantis because DeSantis had oh, all the absolutely. momentum. And now Trump in absolutely. Florida. Absolutely. No, I think there was, you know, remember you had the Washington Post and New York Times editorials, a lot of movement away from the former president. Um, the, the truth of the matter is that he has an enormous constituency. And when he is wronged or they believe he has been wronged, nothing fires them up more. And I think that the more we hear about this raid, the more we wait for something specific on where they are going with all of this. You know, remember, there was a time we were told there was an informant who had tipped them off about documents that were there. That should be a very clean, you know, we enter, we go exactly where we know what we right. need is, we bring it back out with us. No, this went on for hours and hours. They took they took his passports. They took boxes and boxes of stuff. And I realize that there's an ongoing investigation. I understand what the, right. the parameters around that. But they have not come up with anything that is uh, is giving them a good excuse for what they did. And it's only going to fuel him and, and make him stronger. Right. I think you're right. I mean, look, they, they talk about a timeline when they said that all the times they're trying to explain how they get warning Trump that, you know, we're getting impatient of waiting. But in there, they bring up May 20th. On May 20th, they talk about how the Biden administration told the archives you could do what you want. Whoa, hold a second. The Biden administration, I thought they knew nothing about this. I thought they had no hands on this. Wait a second. It turns out if you're going to come out with the May 10th letter to the Trump lawyer, to Evan Corcoran, that was released yesterday saying that Deborah Stridel Wall outlined weeks of resistance that followed the April 12th email. Trump tried to delay and thwart the FBI, he goes on to say. But then she checked with the administration, and the administration says you could do what you want. So how can you tell everybody that you knew nothing about it, President Biden, when everybody now you just had somebody in trying to tell you what a bad person Biden Trump is just said, wait a second, I check with Biden. Look, the bottom line is that the president is in the executive branch. The DOJ falls under the executive branch. The FBI falls under the DOJ. All of these entities are in the same branch of government. Now, you can say that you keep it at an arm's length. But it's pretty clear here that the White House counsel, what they were looking for was narrow was looking for the ability to say, can I turn these things over to the investigators, to the FBI and the Department of Justice to dig into these documents that we got back from from the Trump uh residents and they signed off on it yes you can you can go through them now why would they want to do that why would they want to go through them because they're trying to build a case on january 6th and if they if there's anything in there that they could get then that was going to be helpful to that's them. that's my opinion but that that's why you would do something that aggressive because you're in the yeah. middle of wrapping up this trial and trying to give a reason for it to go through the fall because yeah. there's no reason we need we, cassie hutchinson to come back again yeah and the more we learn about what happened in the raid the more you see these sort of overlapping Issues of January 6th and these confidential documents and presidential rights over having those documents. So let me ask him, if you're Christopher Wray and you truly want to depoliticize your agency and the bureau after what happened prior, I don't care where you stand on Comey, you got both sides ticked off more Trump and Trump fires them and that created an enemy for life. When you get the call from Merrick Garland says, listen, I need you to get a few guys. I need you to go into the Trump uh, Mar-a-Lago and I need you to stay there as long as it takes and pull out as much as you can. Christopher Ray could go, listen, are you crazy? Or what reason? Does he have a machine gun? Does he have a nuclear weapon? 
if I do that, they already know that Kleinsmith got caught changing a Pfizer warrant to hurt him, that McCabe was lied doing it, that struck in text messages exposed exactly their political thought, that Jim Baker was caught red-handed. These are the FBI guys that he's already paranoid about and hates Comey. If I do that, I'll never depoliticize the Bureau. Do you think there was any pushback? And if there wasn't, this guy should be fired. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that this should have been an, a highly sensitive issue. And it looks more and more that we look at it as if it fell under the same umbrella that all of these investigations have fallen under, which is basically we know he's he's up to something. And it it is it's more important that we figure out what it is and stop him than it is to play by the rules. Right. And, and that has left a lot of people in this country very disillusioned with with government, with with our intelligence agencies They're you have you would have to absolutely dot every I and cross every T to feel good about going in there. And you need to be looking for something very right. specific. Hey, uh, Pete, do you think Martha needs to know more? I think not only Martha, you need to know more. Everybody needs to know. So more. let's take a break. That means you put toner Yay. in the printer. You're willing to give me some more stories. Get to Thank you. More to know. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. Uh, Martha McCallum here. Her show's at 3 o'clock. Today, normally my day ends when your show is, goes over. I get to go get some rest. Finally, right? right? After right. 17 hours. And so at 4. So I'm going to be hosting Gutfeld tonight. Great. At, at uh, 6.30. But I awesome. number one, I, I don't like the show. I don't like him. <laughs> That's the problem. Those are my... But I like Tyrus, so that makes it okay. So you said okay. Yeah, yeah. I said okay. Yeah, we, I was almost going to do that show tonight, and then at the last minute they is said, that true? They said, yeah, they said uh, they were they needed me to do it another night. So I guess yeah, they didn't want us right. to. So I I nixed you on the panel, you, and I was hoping it wouldn't you. get back to you. I, I didn't even know it was you at right. the time, but now now, it, it, all make, now it all makes sense. Let's see if we have some chemistry, and if there's more to know. Okay. More. No. University of Virginia student newspaper, the Cavalier Daily, released an August editorial demanding they get all signs of Thomas Jefferson off the school in the building. He founded the school in 1819. It was done in his image. He designed most of the buildings of the original campus, and they want him off. You're a witness, Martha. So I was uh, out for my run this morning, and I was listening to you guys talk about this, and Douglas Murray was on, and he was great on it. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just so preposterous. And he said the problem is all these students are completely ignorant, and it's embarrassing how much they don't know. And I and, couldn't agree more. And the faculty push back, but then they push back again. They're so weak. And where's the president of this university to, say, to say, I'm sorry, that will never happen. We, you know, and, and to go through all of the amazing accomplishments of Thomas Jefferson, which you did a very good job on this morning, talking about the Louisiana Purchase and Lewis and Clark, not to mention the Declaration of Independence. Triple E Pirates. Yes, and people are not perfect. People have flaws in history. Uh, you have to have perspective when you look back at history, at Thank people's you. experiences and activities. Next. Okay, the average person tells four lies per day. <laughs> um, according to this survey, 2,000 adults revealed an overwhelming majority consider themselves a cut above the rest when it comes to being able to spot a liar. Do you think really? you lie? Do you, are you over or under four lies a day? 
I don't know. I, 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 do you think, I mean, it's, no one really knows their line. They might be exaggerating or misremembering things. Right, exactly. That's um, what I say in court. I, I find that hard to believe. I that. think it's always pretty easy to tell when someone's lying personally. Really? Yeah. They look away, number one. They look away. Yeah. They look very uncomfortable. Right. They pause. They look at their toes. They, lo- they pause. Yeah, exactly. Right? They say if you look up to the right, you're making it up. But if you look up to the left... You are remembering something that happened. What if you're left-handed? Does that change that? Not at all. I didn't ask that follow-up question. It shows you're the real journalist. Because <laughs> I'm thinking I never look up to the right. Exactly. And that's when you're lying, when you look up to the right. That's what I heard, yeah. It's NRNL uh, neurolinguistic uh, training or something. Did you say Next, so? the good news about drought. It's revealing dinosaurs. Dinosaur tracks around 113 million years ago have been uncovered thanks to the fact that we're running out of water on Earth. Uh, Situated alongside the Polexi River in Fort Worth, Dinosaur Valley State Park allows visitors to observe dinosaur tracks. They thought they saw them all, but suddenly as the water receded, they're seeing old dinosaur tracks. Isn't this the good news about drought? I would say that if there is a silver lining to the drought, it is the discovery of of more dinosaurs. Yes. Why is so dinosaurs? Why are dinosaurs so hard to pronounce? I'm going to try this. Sour Poseidon. Or was a towering 60 feet tall dinosaur that weighed close to 44 tons. We know that just by looking at its feet. I like the Velociraptor. Because remember in Jurassic Park, the Velociraptors are so scary. I only watched the they Rockies. They would be my favorite. I didn't really watch <laughs> Jurassic Park. Love it. They swept through the kitchen, right? The Velociraptors. It's so creepy. It's awesome. Next. Um, Americans spend over 400 hours in the kitchen each year. Really? I was not surveyed for this. Because <laughs> um, I probably would have fallen it's, well it under could that. could be conversating. But it's true the kitchen is the heart of the home. And I do believe that when you sit down with your family for dinner, you have the best, most meaningful, good conversations. So I, I'm a big fan of sitting together for meals. My dining room table always too stuffed with, uh, with crap. Really? So we have to eat on the kitchen. Why don't you clean it up? We should, but there's a lot of stuff that has to be there. By the time you clean it off, no one's hungry anymore. Next, kids who skip breakfast or eat eggs and bacon more likely to have behavioral problems. Which one is it? Wait a minute. Uh, if they skip breakfast or if they eat eggs and bacon? I'm confused. I dare you question my stories when I had so many problems with yours, but I held my tongue. <laughs> Researchers in Spain found that youngsters who eat a healthy meal at home each morning display better mental health well-being than those who don't eat in the morning. The new study is the first to look at the reported effects of skipping meals. I am right now. I don't eat really till noon. So I would be so much more attuned. Do you eat breakfast? Well, I I do occasionally do intermittent fasting. I try to do like noon to eight. I don't do it every day of the week. Like this morning, I had a very busy day. So I had eggs for breakfast this morning because I feel like it gives me a little bit more energy. What kind of eggs? Energy. Um, It was an egg white spinach cheese wrap. Right. No yolk. No. Sounds really good for you, though. Uh, except for the cheese and the wrap part, probably. Next. Oh, relax to save your brain. Leisure activities can significantly lower dementia. Making crafts, playing an instrument, doing puzzles, lower your dementia rate. Do you do any of those things, Brian? Uh, I don't do puzzles. You don't do crafts? You don't do play an I, instrument? I don't whittle. I have no. no instruments. I played the clarinet up until I peaked in ninth grade. Yeah. I was old junior high and eighth. I'm sure you've heard. But, yeah. And then uh, ninth grade, I said, I, just, I can't get any better. So I do Wordle all the time now, which I, don't I think I don't even know what falls. that is. You I don't know, know the what name, Wordle but I don't know is? how to do it. You're going to look it up right after because you have to play Wordle. And I do the mini cross, which is also a good little brain teaser. And I started doing needlepoint during COVID, which I think is very relaxing because you kind of have to focus on it. You say, I'm going to do this for 20 minutes. My husband loves to do like major thousand piece puzzles. Can I, can I, doesn't do them can often. I judge you? 
Sure, the go only, right ahead. The only thing that I support is the needlepoint because you have something at the end. Right. You do a puzzle. They had it together. They broke it up in order to I challenge know, you. Breaking it's up like the puzzle. put him in the corner. Right. And this is this is a criticism of your husband. <laughs> and let, I mean, or anyone that does puzzles. So I'm not, I'm not pulling any punches. I support the needlepoint because yeah. at least you get a blanket. You do. Or no, a hat. You don't get a blanket. No one needlepoints blankets. You Why needlepoint not? belts, pillows. You can like a belt? knit. You can knit a blanket, but needlepoint is like. You need to look up wordling and needlepoint immediately after this segment. I do These really. Are things that I was thinking, you need to you know. know. What about rug hooking? Do you make rugs? No, I don't. You should needle make rugs. Needlepoint only. Stop the puzzles, make rugs. Yeah, no, no. Watch me on Gutfeld. Watch Martha on her show at 3 o'clock. Thanks, Brian. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.